Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of what would the IT environment look like without Kubernetes. We started on this idea of what if Kubernetes went away? What if there was a copyright or a trademark or an API issue that made us have to abandon Kubernetes altogether? And we started playing what if scenarios. What made Kubernetes unique? Could parts of Kubernetes or parts of the architectural model exist outside of Kubernetes? What would be necessary? And we came back to a piece where we actually had identified enough parts of Kubernetes individually where we saw how it itself is an interesting convergence of some core technologies. Nothing new except in the combination of those architectural paradigms and designs and even open source models. Fascinating conversation where we really dig into what makes Kubernetes so interesting and why it's so powerful in the market. Uh, A fascinating conversation to listen to and I know you will enjoy the whole path through. This is a continuation of our what if not Kubernetes conversation of what would be after Kubernetes. Last time we did this, we went down the Kubernetes influence. I would be interested in exploring the like Kubernetes, you know, actually we've just been talking about copyright for a while. What if Kubernetes exploded from, you know, something, copyright issue, and all of a sudden we're like, oh, wait, we have patents issue, copyright issues. We can't use this tech anymore. What, 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 what would happen? What alternative? Would we be pursuing? I mean, we can we can cover the the basics, but it, what if you know, what if we really opened up the field again? I, I don't know if if it could happen to Kubernetes as a whole, but it could happen to maybe a subsystem uh, like the the runtime or, or I don't know the actually let spec. me so I mean. I think this is real, especially considering what's been going on, like with the with the KubeCon. I mean, you could you could break Kubernetes into sub pieces. This is actually one of my favorite topics on this. Kubernetes at this point has, you know, not just in in projects, but its its use has uses that are completely independent from uh, container scheduling. Mm-hmm. You could look at it just as the CRD pieces and break that off as a as a, as a you know architecture. Um, I, the CNI, you know, uh, the CNI pieces could be a standalone standalone unit. Um, I mean, would that? I mean, we're going to do that. that, that you're, you're, Tied into Kubernetes. I mean, could you take the CRD patterns and have a project that was just CRDs without Kubernetes? Because you don't need Kubernetes for CRDs. You could probably do CRDs more robustly. Actually, let me, let me can I, if it's all right, I'll go, let me go a step further. Let's say you, you said, all right, we're, we, we can't touch Kubernetes. Whole project's dead. Just humor me on the, the, the extrapolation. And people say, all right, great. We really like this CRD pattern. We, we're going to keep doing that. So somebody comes in, they do a, they, they do a CRD only um, app. 
building its own thing. Actually, I wonder how, how close that is to console. <laughs> um, but but you know, we have a CRD app. Would people then build Kubernetes under that, or a Kubernetes replacement thing using the CRDs as the front end API? Does that make sense? Do you understand my hypothetical? Yeah, I I don't think that people would create the same subsystem like that or the same ecosystem as Kubernetes uh, just for one product. But I can I can definitely see the product living on by itself. Like, take let's take for example the the CNI. Um, so, but because for that, we, we do have a real life example. Um, so I see the, the CNI really as, as being the adoption of pre Kubernetes systems like Azure Corps console, for example, um, that, that did allow service discovery and to some degree network meshing. Um, yes, there, there were there are certain things that 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 were not fully abstracted, and so it's not hundred percent. But I I can see the the knowledge of ACNI and 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 the technologies uh, living on uh, outside of Kubernetes again, if Kubernetes certainly became a no man's land. Kind of wasteland. Would the architecture, like, there's a lot of enthusiasm for that architecture. Would it, oh my goodness. I mean, assuming you don't actually just re import the Kubernetes APIs, say, if the taint included the APIs, I know I'm stretching, but then you, you're going to have a, oh, wait, we want. And I, I'm surprised we haven't seen this. People who have built an application that replicates that experience outside of the Kubernetes domain. Um, the yeah, declarative, I mean, declarative programming model. I mean, it's you. You could argue that software-defined networks does draw the very least inspiration from. The CNI idea, okay. Um, right, that that that's one extreme that's closer to the, the hardware. But uh, let's not forget that there were plenty of other projects that competed with Kubernetes for dominance. Um, so there was Mesos, mm-hmm. there was yeah. Docker Swarm. Uh, there's still uh, HashiCorp Nomad. They all just to one degree or another abstract the network. Um, yes. So CSI as well. Like, I mean, cloud platform providers, when, when you create a volume and attach it to a uh, to a VM, that's essentially what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like... I mean, the egress, egress, network egress, and ingress to a workload, I mean, is a material... It's actually one of the funny things. Kubernetes was opinionated about it. I don't think it's been particularly innovative. We have a whole layer of projects that are duking it out on network um, ingress. Right. All of the 
right? And I I don't think anybody's particularly got it right. <laughs> Otherwise, we have a more clear winner. Um, well, it, it seems to be that the consensus is that um, Gateway API is going to become the replacement for Ingress. Okay. Um, and, and which which in and itself is very strongly influenced by Istio's uh, own uh, gateway implementation. Okay. Um, and in both cases, the the new design was intended to be familiar to those who are in new ingress, uh, but bringing the new features which were hard to implement with with ingress. So like ingress itself, and as you, as you said, was very opinionated. It's, it was for HTTP traffic only. Uh, it had certain shortcomings. Um, and, and yeah, so these new systems are intended to replace that. Um, it's going to be a couple of years before it's mature enough, uh, particularly with, with with integrations with with, with our systems. Um, but um, could the Ingress and this is one of the things about Istio, you know, having sort of trying to bounce into its own playground and then not, but could those could that become a standalone technology where, where we're like, yes. I need, I'm going to use, you know, ingress controllers outside of a Kubernetes spectrum. I'm going to use them for container or VM routing or uh, edge routing or something like that, where you're like, oh, I'm going to, I need this regardless of how I'm actually getting, you know, connecting the traffic. Yes, Absolutely. Um, VM often VM support often falls over when you start talking about what OS is that Envoy supports. Huh. Unfortunately, I, I've I've gone down that route and realized that uh, it's really been built primarily with a, a strong focus on containerization and in, in particular Kubernetes. Okay, but but you can still run. Envoy on on a on an OCI uh, runtime, run uh, just that uh, yeah that the the design of Envoy in particular is is certainly tailored towards Kubernetes in, in terms of integration and and configurability. But I I I can see on uh, an English technology certainly being useful. Uh, outside of Kubernetes, if Kubernetes were to go away, um, you kind of already do part of that already with, let's say, uh, with with with, uh, with instance groups uh, that that where you use labels to to pick okay which instances are part of the backend for a load balancer. Um, so it would not be um it would not be far fetched to to then say also okay in, in addition of doing the layer four load balancing let's add some layers layer seven capabilities to that that are then configurable via a certain way which currently the ingress resources in kubernetes but it would be something equivalent outside of it
is are are we just very tied like that the schedulers and you know you end up needing the two things linked together? That if you're doing ingress and and all this work that you ultimately have to have some back end control do the um, so I mean, part part of the like what if you know if part of the question ends up being can we decouple these things into separate architectures right could can is CRD useful people I've heard people say CRD is useful without Kubernetes and ingress controller is clearly useful without right I mean Emily's cloud foundry was entirely an ingress controller um. That was, you know, a lot, a lot of times what we're talking about from a platform is is really an ingress system with some scheduler in the back back end. All right, if you boil it down, uh, an ingress is really just a um, uh, a reverse proxy with decentralized configuration management, uh, and, and perhaps that that part is what we what we should be focusing on because in terms of technologies, nothing in Kubernetes is really new. Hmm. Uh, like everything has had its source somewhere else. Like ingresses as um as reverse proxies. Um Kubernetes services as consoles uh, on its service discovery. Uh CNI as software defined networking or or whatever else you want to uh like an abstraction uh storage uh storage provisioners uh, like csi um again like the like dynamic volume provisioning software defined storage yep uh, so the the interesting part with Kubernetes, however is that a ties it together and b it allows decentralized um, management and requesting of those resources, which, which was to a large degree novel. Like before that, when, when you were configuring a reverse proxy, you had a master configuration file that, that, right. you, man- that yes, you, you maintain it in, like in, in SCM and, 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 you, and you use like Puppet or Chef or, or, or Ansible to, to push it out to your servers. But Kubernetes flipped that on its head and said, okay, I have a a skeleton of a configuration here. And then I and then the server waits for events to add configuration blocks onto that skeleton. Right. So the declare it's the declarative model. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I think the, the post-Kubernetes world w- would likely be taking on that idea and applying it to other resources. So and, the, and declared, the declarative programming model is architecturally um, surviving this is the way out yeah. the way right i, I agree yeah. and, and, and i mean in, in terms of what it might look like that that's that's a question that i cannot answer 
but it, it would most likely at least in its v1 or or v0.1 mm. uh involve terraform pulumi or uh or some other uh declarative infrastructure management i mean the way we 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 i know the, what we do is very declarative in how we architecturally approach infrastructure and i i think it's a good model it's very functional um very lightweight and easy to get started on for for your outcome for outcomes um and i but so what, here's what's weird are we seeing declarative style stuff come in more and more because Absolutely. that winning winning in market as an influence from kubernetes i mean this is where we went last time i think so i might pull us back but i i mean I, i'm probably biased but to me, the answer is is a resounding yes, and, and I even see like concepts uh, from GitOps uh, bleeding out of Kubernetes, mm. and, and in particular for cases where you have, for example, oh. um, regulatory compliance requirements uh, like DoD, FedRAMP, etc. The, the declarative configuration aspect uh, and, the, the, and the continuous reconciliation, uh, which is a very critical piece of this yeah. point in, in, in GitOps, um, it makes it much easier to prove compliance because then you can say like, okay, I, I, have, to, I have this configuration, I have this controller that ensures that configuration drift is corrected. And then I have the controller also emitting audit events saying when it cannot correct a drift. That is 90% of the on, on of the of the work that you need to do to prove compliance. Hmm. I hadn't thought of the declarative model as a as a compliance enforcement system, but it can be. Um, and, and a lot of people are starting to use it more and more. And, and auditors are becoming more familiar with it. Uh, I've got my own personal concerns uh, about it not being, especially if it's not independently verified. And that's the last ten percent of the work that needs to be done. Yeah. But is what's the it in this case? What do you mean by it's not independently verified? So you take an example, something like Terraform, where you say, you know what, I want to spin up an EC2 instance, and it has these particular settings. That's reliant upon the provider, or in this case, the software doing the execution, mm-hmm. actually performing the appropriate operations whether it be malicious or non-maliciously inaccurate. Because essentially all something like a Terraform is doing is attempting to go out and read the state or the, the current status of the environment. If somebody were to decide to slip something in that says, oh, you know what? The, the rules that you want for this particular resource should be this. All it's doing is telling you what the code is telling it. So uh, somebody could, in theory, say, you know what? 
instead of setting this to a five, I'm going to set this to a seven, but I'm going to tell you that it's actually a five. And so anytime you run Terraform, you're going to think that it's setting it to a five and it's going to be a five. And Terraform is telling you, yep, I set it to a five, but I really set it to a seven without you knowing it. Gotcha. That's not where it's interesting. Because methods for Terraform modules. I, but there's, I think there's another piece of it, which is the challenge with something like a Terraform here, or I guess any declarative system is it, it says, this is what I asked you to set. You could have exactly what you thought you had in Terraform and then add in something in the environment that you don't, you don't actually know. <laughs> Terraform didn't ask for, but somebody added it in and attached it. And now, now you've, you've, you know, you're out of compliance, but Terraform doesn't perfectly happy from that perspective. It's not just that I declared I want the environment to be this way. There's actually a broader implication of what that environment should look like. It's not in the specific declaration, but is in the compliance controls or the security control. We should be declared. I mean, I guess maybe this is what's missing in declarative in the in the in the environments we're talking about. I should not just be declaring I need you know this this cluster setup or whatever is in your, in your thing, but I need it to conform to these additional environmental controls. We're not there yet from a but that would be real realistic from a declarative perspective. Right? I mean it's, right that's the thing I often get back into is intent versus what actually happened in the environment which is why mm. I always harp on the fact that mm. declarative code. So oftentimes I've heard the, the reference that uh, Git acting as an, an audit log. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I always push back very strongly on that. And that <laughs> Git is not an audit log. It's an audit log of your intent. That doesn't intent necessarily like mean that. that's, that's exactly what has happened in the environment. It's an audit table component yes of your desired state but yes it, it it's not a complete uh audit so uh, as you said not like, even it, not it's even only the, it's, it's only it's, the intent part it like it, it it doesn't tell you what the actual system looks like um and you also still need to audit the controls that you put on git itself and ensure that you have like your branch protection rules in place um that you that you have access control in case like there's some um protected system information in there make uh, making sure that yeah. the git history wasn't overwritten or or part of it was manipulated yeah well, but even even if it in, if you take a live system and try and pump it to git it's a very um not really designed for any log any time series over you know like like all that stuff it's very you know it's good to be a, a a record source of record or a source of truth record it's not at all suited for maintaining a, a live system like at its core yeah. git is is a versioned uh desired state mm -hmm. so you, you, you can go back into the git history 
uh, as far as you are maintaining that git history. Uh, but by its nature, it is a read-write system, not a read-only system. So the one of the requirements for the audit log is that it needs to be read-only. So tamper-proof. But then, yeah, but to support the drift detection, the compliance against that state is that's a whole other infrastructure. Right? Yes. Yeah, uh, that's the continuous reconciliation. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Hmm. And that we haven't you you said reconciliation pattern a couple of times in that. I think that that's another I don't it's certainly not new for Kubernetes, but definitely something in the Kubernetes processes that became architecturally much more popular. Like most things from a Kubernetes standpoint, mm. it created enough of a new paradigm where people were willing to concede or uh, give up old practices and patterns. Because the idea, in some ways, of the reconciliation has been in things like Puppet for so, forever to so yep. where you could do that. But oftentimes, the way it would be handled was... I don't want Puppet automatically changing my system. I want to have it run in no-app mode, and then maybe once a day or once every week, I'll consider whether I want Puppet to apply the changes. Whereas something like you move to Kubernetes, and it's like, well, you just that's just how you operate. You just let it do its thing and automatically always reconcile uh, the, the state of the system. I, I think the bigger problem mm. with Puppet was that you had one puppet agent controlling the entirety of the system. So you, you, you had to centralize your configuration. Whereas with, uh, with Kubernetes controllers, um, that, allows, that allowed you to compartmentalize it and limit the, the blast radius of a misconfiguration. Whereas, uh, like for example, in Puppet, and this is a real scenario that, that I ran into, a, a misconfigured uh, public configuration would mean that your public agent spent 10 minutes calculating its resource graph and then do nothing because it didn't need to do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, the resource graph is actually a, a huge burden from that perspective. And, and 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 again, because with Puppet you have one place uh, managing every every aspect of of the system configuration, and because the system it it like it's it wasn't a single purpose system like, like we have like Kubernetes encouraged with with its containers uh, and and its namespaces and its pods, uh, so. It was really easy to explode the complexity of that configuration, um, which again comes back down to like decentralizing, decoupling all of these components. Uh, that's the legacy that Kubernetes gave us. Well, wouldn't you say some of that benefited from essentially a closed system, similar to something like a Cloud Foundry, when 
in essence, mm. to deploy a workload for all intents and purposes, Kubernetes controls that entire process almost in an end to end fashion. Whereas with something else, you're like a configuration management, you're adding that to a, a number of other components. Yeah, absolutely. Like the, the, the fact that Kubernetes started Greenfield and said, like, you know, and all of these processes that, that, that we were using on VMs, I'm, I'm going to throw it away. Like, if you don't like the, the way we're doing it, to don't use Kubernetes. But they, they, the Kubernetes designers had a clear idea of what they didn't want to do. And, and that can only be done when you start with a closed system. So, yes, I agree. But I, I mean, some of Kubernetes, there's a benefit Kubernetes has with immutable, starting from an immutable uh, artifact, right? Containers are immutable artifacts, very helpful. Whereas Puppet, you know, or Chef is dealing with, you know, it's really a configuration. It's different. It's just a different model. It's a configuration system and then conformance against it. Um, whereas Kubernetes is really that reconciler loop and the adjustments end up being part of the egress you know, network traffic story, the service service management. Hmm. Uh, there's still, there's I, still I a lot think, of pieces, yeah. I, I don't think it, it was a new concept, um, but... Um, but with VMs, you had a lot of baggage um, just because uh, you couldn't get get rid of that baggage. Like in in, in, a, in a VM, yeah, that's right. You you had to have your your shell. You, you had to have your your init system. You had to have mm -hmm. uh, your your various agents for monitoring for um, for security scanning and and so on. Yeah. Uh, so, but it, with Kubernetes, by saying we are going to restrict the behavior of these components, a pod can only do these things, uh, and and it, it cannot access the, the the host IPC namespace unless it's privileged. And, and it cannot, um, like if it runs as root, fine, but but uh, it like it it doesn't affect the host root and, and so on. So that in turn allowed developers to let go of the package to say like, okay, I don't need to to have a shell in, in the container anymore. And so I don't need to have an init system in the container anymore because there's only one process that should be running. Mm -hmm. um, so that simplified the, uh, the, the capability of packaging up the software um and, and and certainly docker contributed a lot to that like we could yes that uh, does not give only kubernetes the credit for this uh but um but kubernetes added to to that and said okay, let, let, let's not just have a lean packaged software distribution uh, in the in the form of containers, but also a purely declarative definition of how that software is intended to behave or interact with its environment. Yeah, and as a result, um, you you end up uh, being able to make assumptions about the behavior of the ecosystem 
that you couldn't make before and, and thus not mm-hmm. need certain tools. Um, now, again, th- those, those assumptions could have been also been made on, on, on Mesos. They, they could have been made on, on Docker Swarm. So it, it, again, Kubernetes is not the, the only one. It just happens to be the one who came out on top. Right. Docker Swarm actually had even more assumptions. So I think Kubernetes did the right thing by having fewer or more, more control, more control choice. Mesos was the app. Mesos was really a resource, a resource management platform. More than they, you know, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. It really, it really wasn't focused on containers at all. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right. I think the uh, I mean Borg Borg use let me containerize that for you as its core. But the, the this immutability, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, all right. Let me back up for a second because what we've identified is like four or five intersecting architectural trends that came together to make Kubernetes work. And, and it's interesting, as much as people talk about it, I, we really, I haven't seen a conversation that, that pulled these pieces together in the same way. Like we have immutability, which is something that the, the contain, Docker containers like, just floored people with, you know, how easily you could build an immutable artifact and make it portable and like have a, a controlled build process and then reuse the layers. Like that was compared to what it used to take to build an environment. <laughs> it used to do a lot of environment building. It was, it was groundbreaking. But then you have to layer in this, the egress controller, which like we saw in Cloud Foundry very effectively and other platform as a service. So that piece, the declarative components, which we'd seen like Chef and Puppet um, and, and other applications, but the, this idea of the reconciler loop, like all of these individual um, architectural conceits came together in a way. And I don't think we give Kubernetes enough credit for that to the point you were, I think, making is there, there's, there really is a significant culmination a culmination sounds like it's the end um yeah, plateau new plateau of these architecture pieces coming together i i would say that the credit goes not to the kubernetes platform uh, as in the technology okay. but to the kubernetes community mm. like that they saw kubernetes as this modular system they made the right decision to um, to build the the cncf uh so to to have a Mm -hmm. a a clear path for um for allowing projects interesting that want to add capabilities to kubernetes to say like okay i i'm an incubator stage i'm graduated now and and, and it's ready to to be used in production um nice that's a nice ad so the open source model and the community because it really did start from compared to you know mesos there's an apache project or docker which was a single single entity open source project kubernetes did start as a multi-party open source community collaborative community Mm -hmm. 
and, and, uh, and in particular also the um it was a uh was a good choice made by by google also but but also several other tech companies to say mm -hmm. um we have several patterns related to kubernetes we're going to pull them under a governing a governing body and say these patents are now protecting this ecosystem uh, and, and they, they made it re re really difficult to renege the patents out of that governing body once they've been submitted The thing that's fascinating with this, you know, because we started, um, I started with the negative question, which is what, what happens after Kubernetes? And we sort of split apart these different concepts to see if, if any one of them, they're all durable outside of Kubernetes. But there is this really interesting intersection. Well, that's, that's where the, the value is. I mean, they've, in, in many ways, they've all existed. The, the, to the point that's already been made, mm -hmm. it's because they, they're they used in conjunction and in tandem, we see the, a massive benefit. Um, that coupled with the, the patterns, but I, I think the challenge is as we start to, to move out of that ecosystem, it becomes much, much more difficult. Uh, similar to the example when you start talking about things like hyperconverged versus um, all of the components in and of themselves. If I'm buying one set of hardware or capabilities from vendor X, oftentimes that's built to work very well together. But, you know, I say, you know what? I don't want that from vendor X. I want all of these components, these 10 components from 10 different vendors. They're not well situated more often than not to, to work together. Um, so the value is, in, in my opinion, is in the, the closed system. You went to a place I wasn't expecting you to go with that. So the convergence actually to you seems is is adding is adding the value. The fact that the the different the the discrete parts are designed to work together. Yes, in my in my opinion, because everything else is you take something like the networking. VMware has had NSX for for the longest. Mm -hmm. We could have done that in virtual machines. We could have done the quote unquote micro segmentation with antivirus for what the last 30 years or so it's just the the way it's been certainly pulled together as well as exposed and presented i think to me is that the biggest win i suspect that also another part on, on that mm. is that uh and this again going back to again the, the pool of patents that are protecting coordinates that it's a legally safe platform and, and and particularly comparing our history with patents in the past decade or two uh like for example oracle's java lawsuit um having a a strongly pr protected ecosystem uh becomes very appealing and, and, and much uh it becomes much more friendly 
tool uh, to innovation. But couldn't couldn't some of these pieces like break off and then exist independently? Or or now that we've learned these lessons, is there a Kubernetes 2.0 that's got the uh, you know sort of streamline these baked these lessons in? Cloud Foundry. <laughs> Cloud Foundry. And Cloud Cloud Foundry in some ways is Kubernetes. <laughs> Dot zero. <laughs> well, but the oftentimes people say, like, you know what? Kubernetes is going to be abstracted even more. It's almost going to be like Heroku. Heroku or Cloud Foundry. Yeah. It's like, you do realize we had Heroku in Cloud Foundry. <laughs> the, the one that I keep thinking is like, if you abstracted out the, the CRD declarative reconciler pattern. And made that the application first, and then came back and added in the container scheduler. Um, like we we started Kubernetes started with the containers, and then added. You know, the, the reconciler pattern was necessary, but it wasn't generic. If you started made that generic, and then built the other pieces around it, um, you might end up with a not caring about. Uh, Kubernetes APIs at all. You might come back and be like, yeah, I can build a reconciler where I'm like, give me a cluster reconciler. And then it gets, it's just GitOps in a way, gets implemented. You actually don't care about the mechanics underneath. That could be simpler. Like, I, I can see a path where people are like, I don't ever want to deal with Kubernetes pods and YAML or anything like that. I'm just going to tell, say, go give me a Give me a pod and then I implement it. However, that could be in you know, Nomad, it could be in Bargate, Swarm. Just, I, I don't think we've gotten to the new there. there I, my, my money would be on there's an abstraction pattern that emerges because that's always the case. Well, I mean, in theory, we're getting. Some of that with things like to, to your point with with Qvert and even things like Crossplan, it's mm -hmm. that's what I'm asking. In, in my opinion, I don't know that most people see tremendous value without scheduling workloads in Kubernetes. If you take the container away from the Kubernetes cluster, why am I standing up a Kubernetes cluster? I think most people would be inclined to just say, you know what, I'll just use some Terraform, I'll use some Pulumi, or I'll use the CLI, and I'll just stand up whatever it is that I need. Certainly they'll they'll lose the, the automated reconciliation, but I don't know that most people that's the, the first thing that, that comes to mind as a, a must have. I, I think it's I think we, we were most more likely to see um dot Kubernetes 2.0 moves away not so much on the um the uh, part above the control plane, right? Like the Kubernetes resources and, and the Kubernetes API, but the part under the control plane. Right now, Kubernetes mm -hmm. is still, or like core Kubernetes, is still a very regional technology. 
Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you cannot deploy a global Kubernetes cluster. You, you can deploy multiple clusters and, and mesh them together. Um, but you're still tied to, to one region. Um, I, I would not be surprised if the next major breakthrough would be in redesigning the part that's under the control plane. Ooh. All right. I think we have our next topic. <laughs> I'm put it in the, in the calendar. And the interesting thing to me is to get that breakthrough, you have to break through the impedance that has built up around uh, keeping the old version. Uh, that was the problem with OpenStack over time. You couldn't get people to do OpenStack too well because they were too invested in what was currently there. That's why we still have mainframes mm-hmm. in many cases. So that's the, uh, it's the, the classic dilemma. One of those APIs. It's, it's an API question. All right. You're at the top of the hour, so I'm going to we we created a bridge into the how to continue this this topic. Um, we've covered a huge amount of ground. Um, I love. Thank you. I appreciate the hour. Thank you, and uh, we'll come back. The next next question is: What even is zero zero trust? By the way, ah, cool. <laughs> at at some point, I want to revisit digital twins again because I think I kind of sort of get it, but uh, that's been a moving target of late. I think. Well, let's let's think about. We can work next next time on framing the question. Cool. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> bye. Thank you for listening to our Kubernetes discussion. This is something that we will keep decomposing and coming back to as we try to look at alternatives, what's going on, how Kubernetes influences so many of the technology decisions we make. Uh, and we want you to be part of these conversations. Please join us at the 2030.cloud. Love to have your questions, your insights. Uh, be part of the discussion. You are always welcome. Join in. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.